Hi, this is the official podcast of the WCD. That's the World Congress of Dermatology, which will be held next in Singapore in 2023. I'm Dr. Etienne Wang from the National Skin Centre of Singapore, and I will be your host for this podcast. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Registration and abstract submission for the WCD 2023 are open, so please check out our website for more information. In this podcast, I speak with dermatologists and skin researchers from all over the world to talk about all things dermatology. And today, in a bit of a review, my co-host Ali is back with a dumb topic for discussion and she'll be interviewing me instead I I understand hi Ali (laughs) (laughs) hello yeah I mean because I'm sure you'll be so excited about this new FDA approval for baricitinib for uh, adults with severe AA so I just thought I wanted to hear from you about what your experiences have been and what advice you can give like us doctors on prescribing baricitinib for AA Yes, so baricitinib is one of the new JAK inhibitors on the scene. And of course, if pe- for people who have been following the science for the last 5 to 10 years, JAK inhibitors have emerged as one of the more effective treatments in alopecia areas, not only in humans, but also in the mouse model as well. And there's been a lot of mechanistic studies that show that JAK inhibitors are very targeted when it comes to treating active AA, but also in inducing remission. So baricitinib is a drug that was recently FDA approved for alopecia areata, and it's actually the first drug ever to be approved for alopecia areata because alopecia areata has been pretty much an orphan disease for all these years without any approved treatment. So everything we've been using has been off-label, but this is the first time that the FDA has approved medication. So hopefully Singapore will follow suit and will soon be able to prescribe these patients baricitinib with government subsidies. Mm. How has your experience been with the JAK inhibitors for AA? Well, in Singapore, it's still considered off-label because it's not been approved yet, so it's still quite expensive. So I do have a handful of patients taking it up after discussing with them the other alternatives as well. And of course, these are patients who have probably failed intradigenal corticosteroids, topical immunotherapy, and probably either one or the other of methotrexate or cyclosporine as well. So I do have one or two patients who went straight to baricitinib and didn't really care about the cost. But most of the patients have really tried a lot of other things. And it's actually been pretty good because all of these patients actually do have regrowth. I have one patient who has had alopecia for like 10 years and her regrowth is not so good, but it's definitely more than she had when she was in cyclosporin. Um, So far, side effects are not so bad. I had one patient with some gastritis, which resolved after a while, and another patient with a bit of a raised creatine kinase, which unfortunately I had to stop the medication for. So, But other than that, there hasn't been actually that much issues with the drug so far, but of course, it's still early days. And do you know what's the evidence for the remission rates once it stopped? I think it's still quite high compared to everything else. I mean, the success rate is up there in like the 70 to 80%, mm-hmm. but the recurrence rate is also pretty high, like almost one in two will still relapse after you stop baricitinib. But the thing about baricitinib is that so far, the, the patients in America have been on it for years. So, you know, it mm-hmm. seems to be quite safe to be taken long term and, and the dose can be adjusted according to that as well. Mm, I see, I see. And you know, we, I mean, we have also now JAK inhibitors for atopic dermatitis. In your experience, what do you think are the main barriers towards using these JAK inhibitors? Um, you know, whether it's from the physician point of view or the patient point of view. I think the, the main issue right now is still the cost. Okay, Since it's such a new mm. drug, the cost is still pretty up there and um, definitely outreach for most patients in Singapore because right now we, there's no government subsidies for that. If it does ever become approved for any of these other conditions, for example, alopecia areata, atopic dermatitis, or even vitiligo, we do hope that some government subsidies, or at least insurance, will kick in to help patients cover these drugs. Other than that, because it's also very new and we are quite cautious in National Skin Centre in Singapore, we do tend 
tend to rattle off a long list of potential side effects with jack inhibitors. For example, um, increased rates of blood clots, gut perforations, yeah. Uh, increased yeah, increased risk of, uh, of hematological malignancies over time, and usually these kind of scare people off. But I think with more experience with these medications, we will be able to modulate this spiel and you you know give give our patients a bit more confidence in trying these drugs. Mm. Sometimes I also wonder, you know, like as us physicians, our lack of confidence in prescribing the medication because we don't have so much experience, it does kind of transmit to the patient. And then I feel like when I have a medication that I'm not very comfortable with, my patients never get on it yeah, because yeah, yeah. the way you say it, it's yeah. like, yeah, they can tell. Yeah, so I think access is very important. So I mean, every time new medication or treatment comes into the market, it, I think it's up to us to really get familiar with it and to really know the nuances of prescribing it so that this actually gives our patients comfort that we know what we're doing. Mm. So do you think this new FDA approval for Barisisnip will change the prescribing patterns for us like in the next year or two? Well, um, apparently HSA follows the FDA. The HSA is the um, Health Sciences Authority of Singapore and they do follow the FDA quite closely. So I'm, I'm hoping that this will come up soon. But unfortunately in Singapore, any hair issue is still considered cosmetic. So yeah, so, so that's something we've been fighting also. So even for alopecia areata, we need to write to the agencies and write to the government institutions to let them know that no, not all hair loss is cosmetic. Some hair loss is truly medical and we need to be able to support these patients with subsidies or with um, government help if needed. Yeah, that's a very good point. I, th- I think sometimes it's easy for us to sort of dismiss the quality of life impairments that these kind of conditions bring. And it can be easy to say that, oh, you know, it doesn't affect your internal health. There's actually no harm if you just leave it alone. But I guess to patients, the harm is in a different sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this takes a little bit of empathy to realize that losing your hair is quite devastating for a lot of patients, especially those in, uh, you know, in the prime of their life. And it can affect not only their relationships, but also their job prospects and also their social lives. And yeah, so I think it's quite important that that we bring this to the light. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for sharing with me all of this, Ethan. I I really look forward to maybe using some jack inhibitors to practice a bit more. Yes, okay, good. And I encourage you to. <laughs> okay, thanks, Thank Ali. You. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, bye. And now I'd like to welcome to the podcast Dr. Michelle Rodriguez. She's a director of Chroma Dermatology, Pigment and Skin of Color Center at Wheelers Hill, Doncaster. And she also holds the position of consultant dermatologist at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne and is a co founder of Australia's first multidisciplinary vitiligo clinic. Welcome, Michelle, to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Dr. Wang. <laughs> uh, well, you are a huge expert in pigmentation. What is the hottest topic in the world of pigmentation right now, in your opinion? Oh, I think that we're learning so much about vitiligo at this point. The pathogenesis and our understanding of pathogenesis has come such a long way, literally within the last you know, couple of years. And the advent of new and emerging biologic therapies that can not only stop progression of, of vitiligo, but also repigment and potentially stop recurrence um, is something that I think is uh, making many of us in the pigmentary disorder space quite excited and hopeful for the patients that we care for. Hmm. Um, earlier in the podcast, we were discussing about baricitinib, which was just approved for alopecia areata by the FDA in America. What are your views on the use of JAK inhibitors for vitiligo? Oh, look, there's been a lot of research with um, JAKs. Unfortunately, we haven't had any um, uh, phase three trials here in Australia yet, but it certainly is a very promising option for patients with vitiligo. It looks like most of them need to be combined with phototherapy to have the desired effect of stabilisation and repigmentation. But, you know, our colleagues in the US have have published recently um, on this. And I think the, if I'm not wrong, the FDA will soon approve one of the 
JAK inhibitors for, for vitiligo. So definitely coming a long way with this class of agents. And that's one of a few, I think, that will be in the pipeline for these patients. Mm. And uh, are you using any of them in your patients now or even topical JAK inhibitors? I have tried topical JAK inhibitors, including um, tofacitinib and ruxolitinib, but unfortunately it's not available through our government uh, Medicare system and hence becomes very expensive for the patients um, and they still have to have phototherapy, of course, on top of that. So um, I haven't seen a significant difference in utilising those versus the traditional ultra-potent topical corticosteroid along with phototherapy, but that could just very well be because of um, excipients and you know the way things are formulated in a proprietary sense could potentially increase the epidermal penetration and efficacy of, of these medicines so I'm, I'm still very very excited about um, the next steps in Australia but um, we're waiting patiently. This is a huge area of excitement right now especially in both hair and pigment I think both conditions have been neglected over the years <laughs> yeah, compared certainly. to inflammatory conditions yeah. Absolutely, certainly orphaned. And, and at the end of the day, as you would know as a, a hair expert, the psychological ramifications of, of things like alopecia areata and vitiligo, significant, cannot be underestimated. And, um, you know, oftentimes, depending on the cultural background of the patient, stem well beyond the patient themselves and, and influence parents and families. And, you know, the instance of vitiligo, depending on what cultural group you, you might belong to, it could actually have ramifications for everything from your own marriage prospects to the marriage prospects and social interactions that your entire family can have. Or even getting a job or yeah, getting yeah. a job or stuff like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely spot on with that. You are the lead of something called the Passion Project. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, the Passion Project is actually led by um, a very well-known dermatologist who I actually met in Singapore at NSC, National Skin Centre, in 2008 when I was doing a six-month placement there, Christoph um, at HSU, who's from Geneva in Switzerland. He's leading a project that actually looks at by the use of AI to diagnose and assist patients who are in sub-Saharan Africa who have uh, no access to dermatology care or little access to dermatology care. It's very, very underserviced um, population. But the key thing here is that the population, generally speaking, have one of a few conditions, eczema, psoriasis, tinea, scabies, and fungal infections. Uh, other fungal infections are among the most common things that are seen within this population. So the idea was to develop AI and ML models that are able to diagnose this via an app on your phone, where the phone the, the phone takes a photograph of, of the rash, uploads it, and, and can give you a, a diagnosis with fairly good accuracy. And then the patients or, or the, the population within Sub-Saharan Africa can actually go and access the care that they otherwise wouldn't, or the treatment that they otherwise wouldn't have access to purely because they can't see a dermatologist. Yes, and I think the very important thing here is that it's all done in skin of colour, which is also another overlooked data set in the world of dermatology. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, you know, the whole skin of colour concept and, and pigmentary disorders is something that I was inadvertently introduced to um, when I was in Singapore. And I, and I realised that there were so many nuances in skin of colour um, in terms of, you know, diagnostics, morphological differences, biological, structural, functional differences, etc. that translate to, yeah, not only the differences in you know, morphology of conditions, but also their response to treatment. So you're right, you know, having these models adequately represent the diverse global population that we have is going to be critical if the models are to be correct for what is a growing and significant proportion of patients with skin of colour.
building on this topic about reaching out to underserved populations in sub-Saharan Africa, you also do a lot of outreach and humanitarian work, especially in India. What inspires you to do this work? I think it's other other humans, other good dermatologists and other good humans who've gone you know, beyond their borders to, to try to assist in some very small way. And there's a a dermatologist uh, by the name of Claire Grills, who was a year above me in dermatology training, and her husband, Nathan Grills, who's a public health physician, um, over well over probably 15 years ago now, they set up a non-for-profit um, in rural North India to try to address some of the healthcare disparities that existed within the in the population that they were looking to serve. And over the decade and a half, it's grown to involve significant outpatient services, not just in dermatology, but in other fraternities within medicine as well. There's great public health work being done through the organisation. It was called Sampan. It's now been remodelled and and a new name, etc. exists. But hearing about what Claire and her husband did really struck me as something that was important coming from a, a very privileged background, i.e. living in Australia. Um, we've, we've got the healthcare that we need. We've got the clean water that we need. We get the food that we need. Um, and these basic needs are not being met in, in some areas of the world. And my parents are of Indian background, and so there was something special about being able to, I guess, connect with a group of patients that um, potentially I I uh, had a, a connection with, I guess, culturally. And so in 20, I think it was 2017, 2018, I kind of began thinking about ways that we can make a difference within the community, even if it was small, uh, and assembled a group of um, dermatologists, uh, Dr. Wong from Australia, who also has spent time in Singapore, actually, um, and Dr. Giri Raj, who's from New Zealand, and uh, a pharmacist, uh, Manisha, who, who works closely with, with us, and we decided to go over and, um, of course, through the organisation, provide outpatient services and um, equipment and so forth that, that the clinics needed. But we also ran, um, I think, very important um, workshops for the for the communities um, through community leaders to try to dispel some of the myths about vitiligo and about melasma, um, so pigmentary disorders as, as a whole. And speaking with groups of individuals from different villages was, was very helpful for that. And of course, we did uh, the common things, scabies, eradication and, and how to treat and those sorts of things. So very fulfilling endeavour really. And the other one was in the Pacific Islands through a, a brilliant dermatologist in Sydney, um, Dr. Margot Whitfield, who's been working tirelessly with a local dermatologist and Ministry of Health in um, Fiji to try to not only improve services to patients, but also organise a, a structured program through which doctors can actually have further training within the dermatology space. That is to actually have dermatologists that are that are um, adequately trained and at the, in the Pacific Islands at the moment there aren't any official dermatologists as such but there are certainly many capable brilliant motivated young doctors who are keen to learn more and so they're making their way through this program and um, again we support uh, the work that they do through um, teaching and equipment um, assistance and so forth. So it's really others, um, Dr. Wang, that, that have done the hard yards and, and at the end of the day, um, myself and, and Chrome Dermatology in my practice are doing the best that we can to, to support the great work that they're doing. Oh, yes. You're very humble there. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you spent some time in Singapore and in other podcasts, you've also spoken very highly of Singapore that, and said it was formative in your training. Do you have any treasured memories of your time here? Oh, 
um, Dr. Wang, they are numerous. I mean, I can <laughs> honestly say in, in 2007 when I was told, hey, you know, Singapore's an option, I was a little apprehensive. I had no friends, no family there, um, and I'd, I'd literally probably been on a holiday when I was five to, to Singapore, and, and that was it, and I couldn't remember much at all um, of, of the place. But to be perfectly honest, it has absolutely been a critical turning point for me in opening my eyes to the world of pigmentary disorders. Um, and Dr. Boon Ki Go was there at the time doing um, non-cultured epidermal cell grafting, which I got to see. Um, Dr. Thing and, and Dr. Colin were doing their phototherapy clinics and I got to see what was going on there, which again was very new. We were still telling our patients that, you know, <clears throat> not much could be done and we didn't have grafting services here in Australia. So all of this stuff was new. And of course, um, people like Professor Go, um, who were doing the, the laser clinics in skin of colour. Again, we didn't have any laser devices and, and, and centres that were confident and comfortable treating with um, people of, of Chinese background or Indian background or, you know, Malaysian background. So this world of skin of colour and, and, and pigment was really revealed to me in Singapore. And I guess that's from an academic perspective. On a personal note, um, I ended up absolutely loving Singapore because anyone who knows me knows I love warm weather. And, you know, even when other people thought that it was way too hot and humid, I was absolutely lapping up the sunshine. This this place was perfect all the time. Yes, it might rain here or there, but it clears up and the sun shines. It was easy to get around um, for me. I didn't have a car, but you don't need a car. You know, the transportation is, is efficient. It's clean. The food is so brilliant, so varied. Oh, wow. um, you can get anything that you could possibly imagine. So it actually, you know, it actually has become one of no joke, it's become one of my favourite destinations, not just for me, but my parents visited as well. And it's become their, their go-to for a really good, wholesome um, and, and satisfying, you know, trip away for, for all of those reasons. So, um, and, and, and I guess the third aspect is the friendships that I've made. I've got lifelong friends that I've made who were also registrars at the time you know, that invited me into their home so warmly and welcome, welcomingly, you know, during things like Chinese New Year and Christmas because I was I was in Singapore over that period. And so it uh, holds a very special place um, in my heart for, for many reasons. So. Wow, that's so nice to hear. You must be looking forward to the World Congress then next year. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. It's definitely a place that I will find any excuse to visit. And I, I think the World Congress, you know, being so varied you've got everyone from every corner of the globe i mean i love hearing about new developments and what people are doing differently you know in different countries because this is where we are able to broaden our horizons and experiences and 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 have the courage to potentially try something new or think outside the box so i think this is going to be yeah really really fantastic so looking forward to it well wow, thank you and i think you really gave us a really good pitch there for singapore and i don't have to do <laughs> anymore <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank oh, you so much, Michelle, for your time and coming on my podcast. We, I, I think it was re great connecting back to you. I mean, when you joined, I had just came in my first year of training. So it was, you know, yeah. we were both like little babies together at that time. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, it's so wonderful to hear all the wonderful things that you're you're doing with, with the world of hair. So, um, yeah, no, thank you for inviting me, Dr. Wang. I appreciate it and look forward to connecting with you in person in Singapore for sure. Yes, definitely. I'll see you next year. <laughs> okay take care okay bye thank you bye then 
Thank you for joining us on another episode of the official podcast of the WCD. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram at WCD Singapore, and check out the WCD website, wcd2023singapore.org for more updates and content on the WCD. At that website, you can find links to register for the WCD and submit your abstracts for next year's WCD. And until next time, stay safe and use sunblock.